From the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET, this is Detroit Today. In a special mosaic of the coverage about the anniversary of Detroit's exit from bankruptcy, we take a look and a listen of WDET's work. We'll hear from residents who have a variety of opinions about what life is like in the city, and they tell us what's making a difference. City retirees have a say, and some small business owners talk about what challenges they face in the city, but also about some new programs that are helping them. And from our Detroit Bankruptcy One Year Later event earlier this month, we'll listen to the Detroit Journalism Cooperative reporters talk about their work. We'll have an original performance by some youth poets who think poetry can change Detroit. We'll have all those conversations and more after the news. Welcome to WDET's Detroit Today program. Happy Wednesday and thanks for listening. I'm Sandra Swoboda and thanks for joining me this hour. Earlier this month, we marked the anniversary of Detroit's exit from bankruptcy. WDET and our partners in the Detroit Journalism Cooperative did a series of reports in the four weeks leading up to that milestone, where we looked at the city's administration and how services are now being delivered. We also reported on how the deals and settlements in the case are playing out for some of the individuals and institutions involved. All of that work can be found at nextchapterdetroit.com. There are audio segments from WDET and Michigan Radio, stories from Bridge Magazine and our ethnic and minority newspaper partners at New Michigan Media, and some videos from Detroit Public Television. While we thought here on Detroit Today, we would revisit some of the on-air work produced at WDET as part of that series. So let's get out of the studio and into the city. WDET reporter Brianna Tinsley talked with residents about what they think about the bankruptcy and its effect. Some think it was long overdue. Some say it was not needed. Other people looked beyond it. Kelly Patillo. I've never seen Detroit like this, like just the turnaround. I'm sure there's other areas that need to be developed. I know that, I mean, it's a slow process, but I've been here all my life and I'm just loving the turnaround. My name is Sarah Robb. Um, I really respect Mayor Duggan. I think he is creating a city that people want to be a part of, they want to live in. He's creating a lot of opportunities for people that wouldn't have otherwise uh, had opportunities. He's working directly with the neighborhoods to make sure that they know their concerns are being heard. My name is Paul A. Garrison II. Bankruptcy, in my perspective and opinion, was 10 years overdue. But fortunately, it did finally take place. I'm very happy that it did. City Council, sometimes I think needs to be eradicated. Why is that? Although the present City Council is much more efficient than previous City Councils, I think sometimes it gets in the way of progress taking place. Mikael Abdul, I think the bankruptcy was a scam. It was the only way they could take those senior citizens' money. We know in our heart that it was a scam because right after they got through with their scam and taking all them senior citizens' money and their health care, then the city's booming. Now, how are you gonna have three casinos that's making over a million dollars a day and call yourself broke? Asia, Asia Dyer. I don't have a car mm-hmm. so, and I do have to rely on the public transportation system and it's not very reliable. I think that if we're really trying to be a world-class city, we need to get that together. Mm-hmm. For people who don't have cars, for people who can't drive, and also so that we can reduce our, all of us can reduce our carbon footprints. My name is Ernest Davis Eel. You know, I've been here all my life or whatever, and um, it starts from basically the top. And at the top, we had some really messed up people, but right now, we got what's called Mike Duggan, and he's about his business for real. I'm Jesse, Jesse Horn. The city council is too much in competition with each other instead of looking out for the people of the city. Things could, they're, they're, they're better, but they can be better. You know what I mean? Um, look at Midtown. Construction is everywhere. The city is booming. So shouldn't city council boom with the things that's booming within the city? Nick DeCreasy. I absolutely love the city. I retired from uh, Detroit EMS. But I'm still disheartened and sad that, uh, you know, the, the city's take away my medical benefits, said, hey, you're, 
even though you retire now, you're, uh, you know, this is stuff that they took away in a bankruptcy. So it's still, you know, I, I value our police officers and firemen too, but their their pensions and insurance didn't get touched, but ours did. And, uh, you know, I got shot at three times and uh, hit by drunk drivers and rolled over in an ambulance. And, you know, I was out the risk of my life every day too, but it's, uh, I don't understand that part of it. Jasmine Riley. Of course, there's still work that needs to be done, but um, I'm pretty confident and um, it's come back. The city's come back and I'm looking forward to it. Those comments from city residents were collected by WDET's Brianna Tinsley. You can find photos and a little bit more about the people you heard from there on nextchapterdetroit.com in the city section of the one year later coverage. So there at the end of Brianna's piece, a resident said the city is in a comeback. Well, WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter had this report about why we needed a comeback and what we're coming back from. In the months before Detroit sought Chapter 9 bankruptcy protection, when decades of population loss, a dwindling tax base, and at times outright corruption had left the city drowning in a sea of red ink, consternation in the mayor's office and among the often criticized city council was reaching a crescendo. For officials who watch the city borrow money just to cover daily expenses, the series of continuing bleak financial reports grew far beyond simply depressing. Going through years where we had consecutive deficits, which were painful years, I'm doing my best to to look past past that time. Irvin Corley Jr. has spent the past quarter century providing an independent analysis of Detroit's finances for the city council. He was a canary in Detroit's fiscal coal mine, pointing out where mayoral budgets, especially those presented by the Kilpatrick administration, just did not add up. City council members often met Corley's cautionary tales with a collective eye roll, but he says that does not happen anymore. The culture is different. It's different now because... We have a plan of adjustment that arose from the bankruptcy process. We have to follow that plan of adjustment. So you have oversight boards looking at that. You have creditors looking at that. You have investors looking at that. You know, we now have to live within our means. Corley says the city expected to have about a $44 million surplus after exiting bankruptcy, but early projections show the actual surplus could be more than twice that when the official numbers are released likely in March. The city's plan of adjustment calls for Detroit to have about a billion and a half dollars to rebuild with over the next 10 years. But Corley says most of that comes from savings through cost cutting and increased efficiency. He says if the financial projections, especially the estimated revenue from property taxes, are off by even $10 million, the city's narrow fiscal margins would evaporate. That means that some adjustments would need to be made. You know, we might need to cut back on some of the reinvestment and restructuring initiatives without any adjustments, then yes, something beyond $10 million or so could blow the budget. It's a razor-thin financial cushion, but at least one Detroit official says for him, it's nothing new. I operated uh, at the Detroit Medical Center for nine years on a razor-thin financial cushion. I don't know any other way. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan can tick off a list of what he says he's accomplished during his first year in office, leveraging a combination of cost savings and federal funding to install thousands of new streetlights, a full fleet of city buses on the streets, residents' trash being picked up regularly. He has faced questions over what some call the spiraling cost of tearing down thousands of blighted homes in the city, or just how much response times have improved for Detroit's emergency medical service. And Duggan acknowledges much work remains to be done. You know, the biggest thing is we have to get more jobs into this city. Uh, we have to cut car insurance. Uh, we got to deal with the schools. Uh, and those things aren't necessarily city government, but they certainly impact citizens' lives every day, and they're things that we're working very hard at. When Duggan took office in the midst of the bankruptcy proceedings, he pledged to have a far more constructive relationship with the city council than past mayoral administrations. And Duggan says democracy was alive in Detroit, even before former emergency manager Kevin Orr left town. For all practical purposes, my administration was running the day-to-day services of the city, even when it was here, with the exception of the police department. So I don't know that that was uh, that, big a, uh, that big a change. But, you know, there were people who thought that the day Kevin Orr left, the mayor and the council would go back to fighting. And a year later, I think you're seeing a very cooperative uh, and positive relationship. And I think most Detroit is very pleased about that. That's certainly the feeling among some of the people picking their way through ongoing construction at Detroit's Campus Martius Park. 
One of those people, Detroiter Paul Garrison, nods at the rebuilding throughout downtown and says he personally thanks those shepherding the city through Chapter 9 for helping spur the revitalization. Bankruptcy, in my perspective and opinion, was 10 years overdue. But fortunately, it did finally take place. And I think that the city's population is increasing constantly. Thus, our tax base is increasing constantly. And so the money that the city would be bringing in would not have to all go to debt. Census data shows that to be true in a few of the city's neighborhoods, but Garrison says he sees at least one long-standing obstacle still in place. City council sometimes I think needs to be eradicated. I think sometimes it gets in the way of progress taking place. Even after bankruptcy, some things in the minds of city residents, it seems, never change. I'm Quinn Kleinfelter, WDET News. We can't really talk about anything involving the city and its finances without talking about its employees and pensioners. And during the case, perhaps no bigger class of creditors was the focus of media coverage and wrangling in court. WDET's Anna Marie Seisling caught up with some of the retirees to hear what life has been like since they took those cuts to their pension payments and are paying a lot more in their health care since the case. How did I feel? I felt like we had lost the war and we were being occupied by a foreign country and had no rights or benefits and couldn't do anything. So we knew then that we had to sit down and, you know, talk about, do some type of negotiation and mediation, and that's what happened. That's Shirley Lightsey, president of the Detroit Retired City Employees Association. It's a position that got her a seat at the negotiating table during the bankruptcy proceedings. She's one of about 20,000 city retirees affected by Detroit's bankruptcy. Lightsey worked for Detroit's Water and Sewerage Department for three decades. She says, as an employee, she never doubted the security of the city's pension system. You were told that you were going to have a pension. They had the formula for the pension, which had been improved over the years. And uh, we expected to have our pension never to be diminished or impaired. But decades of Detroit's fiscal instability threatened that guarantee. According to court records, the city owed more than $3 billion toward pension funding when it filed for bankruptcy. That debt was part of the reason Detroit entered Chapter 9. Through the settlement, the city won't make substantial contributions to its pension systems for almost a decade. When it does, those payments could be even lower. For general service retirees like Lightsey, the settlement translated to a 5% reduction in each monthly pension check. Cost of living allowances also were eliminated. Detroit's police and fire departments have a separate pension system. After the bankruptcy, terms for those pensioners are different than for other city workers. Nothing was cut from police and fire pension checks, and they retained 45 percent of their cost of living allowances. But for both groups, reductions in health care benefits were staggering. Don Taylor is a retired police officer and president of the Retired Detroit Police and Firefighters Association. The, the biggest hit personally and, and to our members was on the, the loss of health care. Police and fire don't participate in Social Security, so many of ours don't qualify for Medicare. Personally, I worked side jobs, so I did qualify for Medicare. But the additional cost that I assumed when the bankruptcy went into effect, I went from paying basically zero for health care premiums to roughly $950 a month. The city slashed its estimated $4.3 billion obligation for health care and other benefits by 90 percent. But in doing so, retirees were essentially left to fund their own health care plans. Retired Detroit firefighter John Tucker says thanks to his other personal investments, he's in a better position than some of his former co-workers. But he says he's still feeling the impact of the cuts. I, after 36 years, I thought my wife and myself would receive health care the rest of our life. It's gone now. Uh, public employees historically work for less hourly pay because they had better benefits and better promise of better pension and retirement. And now, uh, like I say, I was in the 10 years into retirement, and all of a sudden the uh, bankruptcy occurred and we lost, the, mainly they lost the health care benefit. Similar to when two of Detroit's big three automakers reconfigured employee health care programs to save money, part of Detroit's financial restructuring included the formation of new committees responsible for managing retiree health care benefits. 
Shirley Lightsey is a member of the Voluntary Employee Beneficiary Association. It's a health care trust for general retirees. She says the fact that the Affordable Health Care Act was going into effect at the same time Detroit's bankruptcy was taking away retiree benefits made the new systems even more complicated. We have a very little amount of money for what we need, and we're trying to be very conservative and give the retirees the best that we can and not change things too much for them because they've had enough uncertainty in the last two years. Lightsey has been praised by city and state officials for her work in helping reach deals with pensioners. But at a meeting held in the basement of St. Matthew St. Joseph's Episcopal Church in Detroit, some retirees are critical of the settlement. Rudolph Marco says his rights were not adequately represented during the bankruptcy proceedings. People who were supposed to be our advocates, at the end of the day, they all sold us out for whatever uh, silver they got out of the deal. Um, and, and, you know, you feel abandoned, you feel lied to, you feel cheated. Retirees still disagree about the merits of the settlement, even now, a year after the case's resolution. Marco is a member of another retiree group. It's called the Detroit Active and Retired Employees Association. William Davis, a Detroit water and sewerage retiree, is the group's president. Principally, we're a group that have been and continue to be concerned about the Detroit bankruptcy, especially as it adversely affected our pensions, our annuity clawback. And the, the whole thing was just wrong. And it was, you know, as far as we're concerned, it was illegal. Davis says his group is continuing its fight in court. In September, a federal judge in Detroit threw out the latest appeal challenging the city's bankruptcy. Several other challenges have been unsuccessful. But Davis says he expected the rejection and is taking the case to the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Because, you know, our constitutional rights was violated. You know, it's just wrong on so many levels. One year after the city's exit from the largest municipal bankruptcy in history, many Detroit retirees have moved on trading feelings of indignant confusion for the bittersweet hope that their financial sacrifices will go toward creating a better and more stable city. But there are still some retirees who refuse to see the bankruptcy as a thing of the past. Their work continues, whether in a courtroom or in the basement of a church in Detroit. I'm Anna Marie Seisling, WDET News. In a moment, we'll hear about some developments outside of the city's downtown related to the post-bankruptcy Detroit. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. Thanks for being with us for WDET's Detroit Today program. I'm Sandra Swoboda, and today I'm hosting a kind of mosaic program, bringing you some of the highlights of our reporting about Detroit bankruptcy one year later. All of this work, all of the Detroit Journalism Cooperative work in the series can be found at nextchapterdetroit.com. Take a look. If you can't find what you're looking for, hit me up on Twitter. I'm WDET Sandra, and I will help you out. So that's online. We're on air right now. And we are going to now hear about some economic development initiatives happening around the city, not just downtown and midtown. First, WDET's Laura Herberg has this report about how small businesses are a big part of the city's recovery. Opportunity Black is the name of the first event put on by the Young Entrepreneur Society of the Detroit Black Chamber of Commerce. Hundreds of established and aspiring business owners and young professionals are mingling in a conference space at the Federal Reserve Bank in Detroit. Attendee Tatiana Grant says she feels optimistic about being an African-American business owner in the city right now. The biggest opportunities, I would say, are in regards to capital. But others bring up financing for a different reason. Have you had like a particular obstacle that you've encountered? Money. <laughs> you know, we never approached a bank for a loan. Capital is always going to be uh, a factor for anybody starting a business. That was Ida Bird-Hill, Tomashian Jones, and Alan Williams. As Williams remarks, money does tend to be an issue for most entrepreneurs. But studies show it can indeed be a bigger challenge for African-American entrepreneurs. First of all, racial prejudice is still a factor. 
black business owners are about twice as likely to be turned down for a loan as white business owners with similar financial qualifications. That's according to a Georgetown University study from 2002. But beyond this bias, black business owners in Detroit have a harder time qualifying for loans. When you apply for a loan, your credit score is checked. The Federal Reserve System says, on average, African Americans have lower credit scores than whites. Then there's collateral. Lenders want to see what you're able to offer up in case you're not able to repay a loan. A house is a good source of collateral. But Detroit's home ownership rate is two-thirds of the rest of Michigan, according to the U.S. Census. That leaves a significant number of Detroit residents who can't leverage a home to help them qualify for a business loan. Of course, there are African Americans in Detroit who can walk into a bank and walk out with a business loan. But for many, it's difficult, if not impossible, to meet the criteria. Kimberly Faison is the director of a community organization called Prosper Us Detroit. She says it makes sense for banks to be conservative. Quite honestly, they have investors, and those investors are very risk-averse, and that's appropriate for a bank. But in a place like Detroit, where you have so many people who are not actively participating in these financial systems, it's really important to be mission-driven in this work. And mission-driven work is not cheap. Prosperous Detroit is one of a handful of programs that have popped up in the city in the last decade to help set up underserved entrepreneurs for success. Faison's organization helps clients write business plans that are, as she says, rooted in reality. Then a loan officer helps them prepare documents that are reviewed by a lending committee. Because the money comes from foundations, the committee isn't as selective as traditional lenders. Faison says this support and trust is needed in a city where so many people are deemed unbankable. We really do have to approach this particular issue in a different way because Detroit has too much talent to continue to lose it to other places, you know, for lack of access. We were trying to move to Farmington. And my wife said, hey, if you're going to open up a business, why not look in Detroit? And here we are. That's Dante Williams, a 37-year-old father of five and graduate of the Prosperous program. He's wearing a pinstriped shirt with a vest and vintage-style glasses. This is the soft opening for his barbershop, Cuts Lounge, in Detroit's Grandmont Rosedale neighborhood. Uh, So this is the uh, barbershop space. We are going to have roughly nine stations set up here. He's gesturing toward the barber chairs set up in front of framed mirrors over a shiny hardwood floor. The shop includes a lounge area with leather sofas and a toy-filled play area in the back. This space is a dream come true for Williams, who calls himself a starving entrepreneur. He's been cutting hair since he was 11, most recently at a shop in Inkster. The one thing that lacked in my whole professional uh, entrepreneur career is the fact that I, I could not get past my financials. But Prosperous set him up with an accountant, and he was finally able to get a loan. That money, coupled with financial help from friends and family, has allowed Williams to renovate this building on Grand River. That whole section there was a wall, and that was the first wall that I kicked in. You know, so being able to see this and see past that, as you say, another barrier, right? Another barrier, no longer in his way. Williams is just leasing the building right now, but he hopes to make enough money from cutting hair to someday buy it. New businesses like his mean more jobs, which lead to more taxes being paid, and that makes Detroit better able to meet the revenue projections in its recovery plan. In other words, supporting development like this makes sense for the city. Have you seen the new program we did? Who's heard of Motor City Mash? That's Mayor Mike Duggan speaking to a citizens group at a Midtown church earlier this month. He's talking about a new program that offers up to $500,000 in grants every quarter to Detroit businesses and building owners. Of the first 10 winners, the mayor says all were from Detroit and a majority were men and women of color. We got a lot of Detroiters with great entrepreneurial skills uh, who could never imagine they could never get a loan, they could ever get started. We're not going to be a great city until... Our folks growing up here feel like they could own their own businesses. Back at Opportunity Black, Ken Harris, president of the Michigan Black Chamber of Commerce, wants to document that that time is now. 
he asked the audience at the Young Entrepreneur Society event to pull out their phones. But I just said, hold it in the air. All right, let's get ready. I want everybody to take a picture of this crowd and each other, and I want you to tweet it right now, because this is how we get down, because you know what? They say y'all don't exist. They say successful young black businesses don't exist. So stand up, tweet, MySpace, hashtag, put it all together. And at Ken Harris's urging, the entire crowd is on its feet. Just think, if every one of these entrepreneurs got a loan, was able to grow their business, and hire employees, that would mean more tax money for Detroit. Then the city would likely find itself in better financial standing. I'm Laura Herberg, WDET News. Keeping on our theme right now as we look back at some of WDET's work about the one-year anniversary of the exit from bankruptcy, let's hear Jay Carlisle Larson's piece about the Six Mile and Livernois neighborhood. It's a few miles from downtown, but it's getting some economic development love. Here's that report. Over the past four years, University of Detroit Mercy, the Kresge Foundation, and the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation have been meeting and having productive conversations with residents and business owners of this area about how we might revitalize the Livernois McNichols Corridor a little bit further. That's University of Detroit Mercy President Antoine Garibaldi announcing the creation of the Live Six Alliance in August. It's a joint effort between the two colleges in the area, U of D Mercy and Marygrove, along with the Kresge Foundation and the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. The name of the initiative is a combination of Livernois and Six Mile, otherwise known as McNichols. The project's goal is to infuse the surrounding community with $700,000 in order to revitalize the district. Based on survey of area residents, the alliance has four major objectives. Safety and security was very high on their list. Neighborhood stabilization, business attraction and and retention. And then the last one was really getting them involved in some of the efforts that they thought this area should have been involved in a long, long time ago. Garibaldi says U of D Mercy has a vested interest in the health of the neighborhood surrounding the campus since the school and the business district have existed together for decades. Here's a quick history lesson about the genesis of the university's place in northwest Detroit. It starts with the journey of Father John McNichols, president of the original University of Detroit in 1920. He, armed by a couple of companions, makes the trek up to northwest Detroit with $100,000 in a satchel. Makes his way up Woodward, I suppose, and turns due west at some point, and he buys the farmland that the University of Detroit Mercy sits on. That's author and historian Ken Coleman. He says when Father McNichols relocated the university to northwest Detroit from downtown, it transformed the agrarian landscape to an urban neighborhood. And he says the real coup for the Livernois Business District was when S.S. Kresge broke ground in 1945. And from there, you get stores like B. Siegel, Lewis the Hatter, Kroger's has a supermarket there, and by the 1940s and early 50s, the avenue of fashion is on and popping, if you will. But Coleman says despite the avenue of fashion's decades-long success, it ultimately paralleled Detroit's decline. He says there was a loss of population beginning in the 1960s. At the same time, there was a growing desire to shop at enclosed malls, such as Northland Center and Southfield. And once foot traffic started declining along the avenue, the big stores, such as S.S. Kresge, moved away or went out of business. One entrepreneur who has been in the area for nearly a decade is Rhonda Morris, the owner of Lucky's Cheesecakes on McNichols. She says she'd like to see the area grow economically. I would like to see more businesses because it's a great area and people come. They come and I, I try to always have it looking nice around my building because people are coming here from everywhere. Morris elaborates that beautifying the neighborhood could help the area, saying she'd like to see it look more like Royal Oak compared to what it looks like now. I love when you are driving down the street and you see all the pretty flowers and people are sitting all out front. I want to do something like that. Fostering a symbiotic relationship between the universities, the neighborhoods, businesses, and residents is a key component for the Live Six Alliance. And with Detroit rebounding post-bankruptcy, attracting businesses to the area may be an easier prospect than before, both from an outside perspective, where the city may look more financially stable after emerging from Chapter 9, and for longtime residents who can take advantage of new programs established by the Duggan administration. People that know, know. So as soon as the press conference happened for this organization, people started looking into buying properties. 
I don't think there's a hard sell that needs to happen. Everybody, it just makes sense that the area in between two universities would start to develop at some point. That's Lauren Hood, acting director of the Live Six Alliance. She comes to the project after a long career in community outreach and development. As part of her position with Live Six, she's been reaching out to community members throughout the area. She's gone so far as to set up a mobile office in the parking lot of a long-gone Italian restaurant on Six Mile in order to more quickly touch base with residents. She says her conversations with people in the neighborhood have been varied. Their concerns range from a desire for better public safety to more business development. And she says many people would like to have stronger relationships with their neighbors. A lot of people talk about getting back to a point in time when everybody knew each other. A point in time where this was not just a neighborhood, it was a community. So it wasn't just a bunch of people living in houses. It was a bunch of people that were connected to each other, knew each other, helped each other out, had each other's back, looked out for each other. But getting to that renewed sense of community will take time, and developing the area won't happen immediately. U of D Mercy President Antoine Garibaldi says the university and foundations have heeded the wisdom from another local leader in economic development, the woman many consider to be the driving force behind Midtown's revitalization. Sue Mosey has talked and spoken to us on a, on a regular basis, and I've had the great opportunity to listen to her on several occasions. And she reminds everyone that Midtown did not revitalize itself overnight. It's really 30 years in which some of those initial projects uh, were started. And we think this one is going to be gradual as well. Garibaldi says the university and its partners have been very conscious of the darker side that sometimes comes with accelerated economic development, mainly fears surrounding gentrification. He says the Live Six Alliance has been proactive in having residents take part in the conversations surrounding projects in the area. Garibaldi says since the city emerged from bankruptcy, initiatives such as the Motor City Match and demolitions of blighted buildings have enhanced the Live Six Alliance project. In the past year, former Detroit Lion Ron Bartell opened Cuzzo's Chicken and Waffles on Livernoy, just north of Seven Mile, and it was recently announced that the owners of Bucharest Grill would open up another location in the area. Beyond new business, Live Six's Lauren Hood says she hopes new residents will add to the corridor's growth, preserve its history, and strengthen its culture. I'm Jay Carlisle Larson, WDET News. Detroit's future is all about its finances, as you heard there and in some other reporting on the Detroit Bankruptcy One Year Later series. I want to thank all of the WDET and Detroit Journalism Cooperative reporters, editors, and producers for their great work on this project. In a moment... We'll hear a little bit of what went on at our community event marking the city's exit from bankruptcy. I'm Sandra Swoboda. Stay with us on WDET's Detroit Today program. Happy Wednesday and thanks for being with us on WDET. I'm Sandra Swoboda, your host today on the Detroit Today program. We've been revisiting some of the WDET coverage related to the year anniversary of the city's exit from bankruptcy. And now we're going to hear a little bit of what happened at our community event earlier this month. So for those of you who weren't there or want to hear it again, you can find recordings of those segments at nextchapterdetroit.com. Head to the Detroit Bankruptcy One Year Later link on the homepage. If you click on that, you will find a link to the event. Uh, We did cut the program short that night, but we wanted to bring you on our airwaves what we were not able to have our audience presence for at the event. So here is WDET's news director talking with a group of journalists from our partners in the Detroit Journalism Cooperative. I'm Jerome Vaughn from WDET, and I'm joined by a panel of reporters. We're going to talk a little more about Detroit bankruptcy one year later. Mike Wilkinson is with Bridge Magazine. Ed Moore is with Detroit Public Television. Lester Graham with Michigan Radio. Chastity Pratt with Bridge Magazine. Barbara Lewis with the Detroit Jewish News. Ali Harb with the Arab American News. And Keith Owens with the Michigan Chronicle. Let's uh, start with you, Mike. Uh, You've raised some questions about how much police response times have improved in the city of Detroit. What do we know and what are residents saying about it? Well, I think the the response times in the city were a major component of why we ended up in bankruptcy. It was cited as one of the reasons the city was failing to deliver services to its residents. And in the filing, uh, Kevin Orr talked about it being 58 minutes for the most serious crimes. 
The mayor is currently saying it's 17 minutes, 16 minutes, and that sounds fantastic, and it is. The only problem is as we compare it to the past, it becomes a little more difficult because what we consider a top priority call has changed. And you know, at one point, you know, we saw a 20-minute drop in response times, but that corresponded with so many crimes no longer being classified as a top priority. We lost thousands of call types a month, which lowered the number. So finding apples to apples comparisons are difficult. Yes, it is lower and people are recognizing it, but it's not 17 minutes from an hour. It's probably closer to, we've seen substantial changes from 20 minutes to 17, which is a real amount of time when there is an emergency. Is it something that uh, residents are, are saying to you that is making a big difference to them? Well, I've not talked to a lot of people about it. I mean, people are, are seeing more officers on the street. They've gotten a lot more cars. Um, even though the, the manpower in the department has gone, continues to go down, I think it's 15 officers a month retire. They just have not had a chance to make those numbers up with, with people going through the, the police academies. Um, but there is a, apparently is a presence on the street that's there. They've also made some managerial decisions in the way they uh, dispatch cars and they, they manage the, the, the caseload that they do have. So there have been positive changes. But I just caution people that is it from 17 minutes now from, from an hour? It's probably not. If you want to make an apples to apples comparison, it's, it's, it's a gain, it's an improvement, but it is not that stark of a comparison. Ed, you've worked on some uh, stories regarding uh, public transportation in Detroit. What are employees of DDOT saying and what are residents saying about their expectations for mass transit post-bankruptcy? I, I mean, I think at a minimum, the expectations are not have to take three hours each day to get to and from your job. I mean, I think that's probably the, the, the biggest improvement if they could do that. And if they could even kind of get close to being on time, I think that would be a huge improvement as well. I think more on a macro level, though, I think people throughout the metro area are, are really hoping that, that, that the city leaders really start to get it. And I, I, think, I think they are. We had, uh, as of the time when we uh, filed this report, 80 new buses had, had come into, into Detroit, had, had gone into the system. Now, to get those 80 buses, uh, you, normally you'd have to wait two years on a waiting list for those buses to be manufactured and be delivered, but there were other municipalities that got out of the way that allowed Detroit to get those buses. So these other municipalities, they get it. They, they get it that, that public transportation is critical for the economy, for people to have access to schools, for people to just, you know, to be able to get to the grocery store and back in a reasonable amount of time and make the city run more efficiently. These other cities get it, and they stood out of the way to let Detroit get their buses. So I think, I think on, a, on a bigger level, I think people are just hoping that we've, you know, pardon the pun, turned a corner on public transportation. Lester, one of the tough things that uh, folks in Detroit went through as part of the bankruptcy are, are seeing pensions cuts, uh, pension cuts. How have they been responding to that, and are there some lessons that other municipalities can learn from Detroit's experience with pensions? Well, of course, the non-uniform employees took a 4.5% cut, plus they took a lot of health care cuts. So that means that they've had to tighten their belts, and they're also not going to see any cost-of-living adjustments, which means each year a senior citizen who retired from the city of Detroit is going to get a little poorer. That's going to be tough on them. The real uh, worry, though, is what's going to happen in the future. The pension funds are not performing as well as they expected. They thought 6.75%. They actually performed about 5%. Now, that 5% tracks with the Dow, Dow Jones Industrial Average, which you have to say that's a pretty good gauge, but that's not what they're counting on. So if they can't keep up the pensions where they want them, the amount that they want, they might have to come back and cut pensions even further for uh, some of the retirees. That's going to be tough. The cities, the other cities have been looking at this, but I don't think any of the cities and some of the states, like Illinois, have learned anything from this bankruptcy. They still just keep kicking the can down the road with the hope that maybe some miracle will happen in the next 10 or 20 years and their pension funds will be saved. Chastity, you reported on schools. While it's not officially a part of the bankruptcy, we all know it's something that's important to keep Detroit moving forward. What are parents saying to you about their concerns for their kids, what it's going to take to keep them in Detroit, or to attract new residents from outside the city? 
You know, Jerome, I think just about everybody knows right now that the governor and the legislature is now considering bills to try and change the governance and accountability system for schools in the city. So we're going to probably see our fourth governance change or change in who runs the school. Uh, the fourth change since like 1999 and the, the, the state has in some form or fashion run the schools in Detroit uh, for most of the past 15 years, 16 years. But I think what parents are saying to me, they're saying, look, whether they're here or they want to live in a city and send their kids to a public school for free, they're saying we want to see some stability. Uh, it, it really hurts children when you see governance changes every few years teachers who are moved in and out of classrooms and over I mean all of these stories of constant instability is what um, you know hurts kids and parents don't want to see that they want to see some stability they want to see some adequacy and funding give the schools the the resources that they need whatever that money is whatever that number is and uh, they want to see of course improved quality better test scores uh, I mean they want everything that people across the nation across the state want for their kids, and uh, I think, again, the biggest stickler is we want to see some consistency. That's what I'm hearing from parents. But at the same time, I'm not sure what the, the powers that be are hearing from parents because as the power structure is now, there's no real public way for parents to talk to the people who are in charge about what they want. There's no open public meetings as, as we used to have when there was uh, an empowered school board. So these are just things that I'm hearing, but uh, we don't have public meetings like we used to. And parents also do want that. They want the opportunity to, to say, look, this is what I want and hold someone publicly accountable for it and have you know face-to-face conversations. We've missed that in uh, Detroit Public Schools in particular for the past few years. Barbara, you've talked to a number of people at um, the Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, some of the people who aren't in the higher offices, uh, docents, volunteers, uh, some employees who sort of walk the floor, as it were. What did they say to you about the feeling uh, and how things have changed there post-grand bargain? Well, when Detroit first declared bankruptcy and there was talk about selling the museum's assets to settle the city's bills, there was universal worry among the people connected with the DIA. They loved the museum and the thought that some of the art might be sold was just horrifying to everybody, Um, although they they knew that something had to happen to um, bring Detroit out of bankruptcy. One of the employees told me something very interesting, and that was that most of the art, they don't even really know who owns it. Some of it was purchased when the city, when the museum was owned by the city. Some of the pieces of the art were purchased then. Um, A lot of the art came in as bequests from people who gave it to um, the Founders Society. So it's not a city asset. And then there was the whole issue of the art not being owned by the city, but being a public trust, the whole museum being a public trust. And uh, as Anne-Marie Erickson said earlier, if the grand bargain hadn't happened, we would be in court right now, tying up a lot of money and time and energy just trying to get things settled. Um, So all the people I talked to connected with the DIA thought the grand bargain was brilliant that it was able to help the pensioners while protecting the DIA and that it was a partnership that worked out to everybody's benefit. Um, They said they've noticed a change since the grand bargain and that things seem a lot more relieved around the museum now. There's not the tension that there was. Um, One of the volunteers told me he was getting a lot of uh, kind of black humor from visitors like, oh, I better see it now before it's all sold. And um, they're finding people now telling them how much they like the museum and how happy they are that it's safe. Ali, you did some reporting um, on on immigrants in Detroit. You reported that there are um, 36,000 immigrants in in Detroit now. What what are they seeing as their role in a post-bankruptcy Detroit? Well, the immigrant community in general is entrepreneurial by nature. Data shows that immigrants are twice more likely to start a business than native-born Americans. So they have this business role to play in the city. I mean, stop at any gas station in Detroit. The clerks are immigrants. The owners are immigrants. Uh, The small restaurants, and and we're not only talking about the Middle Eastern American community, uh, the Latino community, uh, the Asian community, we're 
entrepreneurial by nature. Immigrants are entrepreneurial by nature. That's for existing residents who are immigrants. But new immigrants can be new residents. And while we're seeing things improving in Detroit, services are improving, we have more buses, we, the police response time is improving. But the residential base is not really growing. And bringing new immigrants in is one way to grow it. And Detroit can be a very attractive destination for immigrants because of low-cost housing and because of the existing immigrant community. So we have, if, if you're from the Middle East, you have an existing community where you can feel at home in Detroit. And in a few years, you'll be entrepreneurial, you'll start a business, and you'll play the role that immigrants generally play in producing jobs, not taking away jobs. Uh, Keith, uh, we've got just a few minutes left. I'm going to give you the last question. You've talked to a number of Detroiters over a period of time. Um, as, as you talk to them about bankruptcy, are they saying that Detroit has turned a corner, or do more people say Detroit has turned the corner? I think it's been somewhat mixed, you know, is what I'm, what I'm finding. I mean, you have a group who are very, very opposed to what is happening, to what is happening, who question the resurgence, in the sense, I mean, everybody um, is familiar, of course, with the success of downtown, with Midtown, and how well that is done, and that's good. I mean, you can't argue against that. And um, also, Avenue of Fashion, things are happening there, the other areas that are slated for improvement. However, there's also some who have the question about what's going to happen to a lot of average Detroiters who live in the neighborhoods. And for example, a lot of the programs that are available, that are being made available, they look good. Well, I wouldn't say they look good on the service, but they, you know, they offer help. But they offer help more to folks who are middle, upper, middle income, who can take advantage, whose credit scores are good, who can, you know, who have who have jobs that can pay. If you have folks who are in and in, in lower income neighborhoods who, who um, they've lost their job, they're having trouble getting by, and we all we're already seeing how many foreclosures there are, tax foreclosures, people losing their homes, etc. People want to know what about what about them, and I think this is where the concern comes in about. Well, what some may call paranoia, but paranoia, but it could be justifiable paranoia about are we being moved out? And I think that that's where that fear comes from. It's not from the folks who are stable, who are doing well, because they're 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 being looked after. They're fine. But for those who are just hanging on, there's not there's, you don't see a whole lot out there to help them to continue to hang on. What you begin to see is something that makes it easier for them to purchase homes that are gone. You know, so folks who are, who are coming in from the outside says that house is gone, I could not purchase that home. But for those that lost that home, who are on the verge of losing it, there's a, you know, there's a very big fear there. You know, so I think that's where the question comes in in terms of what, how much the resurgence will happen and what will happen with the neighborhoods and how much, what, um, who is going to be left uh, in Detroit in the end. So that, that's, what, that's basically what I'm hearing. Uh, a quick follow-up. So sure. for the folks who are positive about the direction things are going, I is it moving fast enough, the resurgence? Is it moving fast enough? I think so. for those who are positive, sure. You know, for those who are, I think the folks who view it in terms of how it's going forward, they would view it as, I mean, once again, the focus is in terms of, you know, midtown, downtown, you know, areas that are growing fast. I mean, it's going fine. You know, so those who are positive are very, very positive. Everybody may look at some little, you know, this isn't quite going as I wish it would go, et cetera. But for that group, yeah, but, it's, but they're, um, like, as, as I said, it's evenly split. There are those who have, a, have some hesitation as well. Thank you. I want to say thank you to all of you on the panel for uh, spending some time with us uh, today and answering some of these important questions. You've done great reporting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Jerome for hosting that discussion and much appreciation to all of our Detroit Journalism Cooperative partners for being part of that. Well, there was one more group on stage at that event that we want to bring you today. It's a group of youth poets from the Inside Out Literary Arts Program. They wrote an original poem about the city's bankruptcy. And as you'll hear in a moment, it's really about much more than that. In the weeks leading up to their performance, a couple of times I went out and visited their classroom at the Cody Detroit Institute of Technology College Prep High School there out on the west side. And we talked about the bankruptcy and some of its related issues. I answered some of their questions, asked some of my own to them. And then they wrote this poem and performed it at the event. Give a listen. Whereas the state of Michigan once had 296,000 manufacturing jobs, but now only has 27,000. Where are all our jobs gone? And astonishing, 47% of the city's residents are now 
Function. Functionally. There we go. Functionally illiterate. Why, Why are our schools being shut down? Whereas, when you call the police or ambulance, it takes an average of 58 minutes to respond. A lot can happen in an hour. A violent crime occurs every 25.3 seconds. Somewhere in America, a woman is getting raped every two minutes. Little Caesars can have a hot and ready delivered to my doorstep in less than 30 minutes. Just 30 minutes? Maybe we should try to see this to be emergency responders. Whereas... 78,000 of our home and property have been abandoned. Scared of hunting houses? What about haunted blocks? blocks? You better watch your surroundings because you can get snatched up anyway. In, In the, the dark. dark. I hear things are getting dark. Even the streetlights have started to go out. That just means it's our time to bring in our inner lights. Whereas. B is for bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. A legal procedure involving people and businesses in debt. What about cities? A state of being completely lacking in a particular quality or value. Like money? <laughs> See, it's more complicated. Well, it's complicated. Like a divorce. With a crappy settlement. Like it's not you, it's me. Like no matter how hard they try, they always lose. Poor, Poor lions. Like, think about it like this. At least now we're not 20 billion in debt, we're only 11 billion. Like, I'll trade you my peanut butter and jelly and pudding for your salary sticks. Or like the Joe Louis Arena. Or the riverfront property. Complicated. Losing our landmarks doesn't feel like absolving debt, but death. After 25 years of service, having your pensions cut must feel like a bomb dropping on you unexpectedly. Do dropping anchors in a bottomless ocean, saving already sinking ships. Complicated. Every world worth winning has a fallen soldier on the front lines. But we were made to prepare for the unexpected. In 1960, we had the highest income per capita in the entire nation. But this was unexpected. But we are unbreakable. Though our economies collapse. Though the world thinks. We've fallen and we can't get up. We can. We, we will. Oh, media, catch our good side. Our east side, our, our west side. side. Our good side. Our renovated school. Our declining dropout rates. Our our occupied homes. Our cities occupied hope. The revitalization of our parks and neighborhoods. Our innovative entrepreneurs. Our brilliant artists. Our brilliant poets. Our vibrant urban farms. Our hustling and bustling downtown. Our, our Detroit, Detroit spirit. spirit. Our Iron Fist fight back. back. Don't call it a comeback, comeback because, because we, we never, never left. left. Break through bankruptcy to, to the, the other side. side. From what I know, we from what I know, we are rich. A comeback. We, we can. We will. We are resilient. That's our show for today, a look back at WDET's look back at the bankruptcy. The complete coverage is at nextchapterdetroit.com. Thanks so much for joining me today and being with WDET throughout the year. I'm Sandra Soboda, and I wish you the happiest holiday season. You are listening to the Michigan Association of Broadcasters Public Radio Station of the Year, WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station.